So I wonder this morning, um, if you've ever faced a time in your life when you have cried out to God with words along these lines, where are you, God? Where have you gone? I've lost you, God. It seems as though you've disappeared. Come back to me. God, show yourself to me. Where are you, God? I wonder if you've ever experienced a season where trying to connect with God or talk to God is like connecting with a brick wall, just distant, unresponsive. Maybe you're experiencing a season like this right now where maybe you're crying out to, the God, to God at the moment saying, where are you? And while today is Mother's Day, thank you, John, um, it is a day that is marketed as a day of celebration, but we know so well that for many, there's no celebration in it at all. For many, it's a painful reminder of loss, of hurt, of the people they can't be with today, especially at this time. And it's a day we are crying out, where are you, God, can be all the more real and all the more touching. And today we're going to begin the story of Esther, which is a story in which God is not even mentioned. God seems so distant, so non-existent even throughout the story. And it's a story where you could spend moments after moments crying out, where are you, God, in all of this? And so I just want to take a moment as we begin to pray to remember those who, for today, it's not a happy Mother's Day, and to invite God to speak to us, to meet us where we're at, even in these times where we can't see him. Lord God, we thank you that you are full of the compassion of a parent. We thank you that just like any mother would, you gave everything that you had for your children. To keep them close to you, to keep them safe, to call them back to yourself. And Lord God, we thank you that you've walked through the deepest valleys. You've walked the deepest paths of pain. And you sit with us in those moments where we feel that too. And you are there, a comforter by our side. Lord God, there are so many moments where our human eyes can't see you and where our human brains can't comprehend what you're doing in that moment. And so God, we invite you this morning, please, to open our eyes, to open our minds and our hearts to see you, to see where you are working to know the closeness of your presence at this time, to know that you are no more than an arm's length away, waiting for us to reach out. Lord God, we just ask for your presence, your Holy Spirit so close to us right now. Would you reveal to us, God, where you are working in your story, in our lives, even when we can't see it? In Jesus' name, amen. It's story time today. 
My name is Esther, and over the next seven weeks, you're going to hear my story. This week, we begin with chapter one, with the beginning of my recorded story. But you may note that in the beginning of my recorded story, in my chapter one, I don't even get a mention. I'm not even a character in my own story right there at the beginning. But that's okay, I guess, because there's another key character in my story who doesn't even get a mention throughout the whole book, and that's a character who does a lot of heavy lifting. But we'll get to that, though, over the coming weeks. For today, we are looking at the beginning of my story, starting with chapter one, the chapter where I don't even feature. The story opens with a tale of a king, but not just any king. We are led to believe that he is very powerful, a king over 127 provinces stretching all the way from India to Ethiopia. King Xerxes, grandson of Cyrus the Great, the ruler who allowed my people to return home. He allowed them to return home after the Babylonians had overtaken them had held them captive for years in their foreign lands and destroyed our temple at Jerusalem. Cyrus the Great, he was the one who granted us freedom, who had made the way for us to return home. And my people, some of them were just so grateful that they chose to stay. They chose to stay living there in Persia in the foreign land. My family and I, We were some of those people, remaining in the fortress of Susa. But as I said, chapter one of my story isn't about me. And though Cyrus the Great was no longer with us, his legacy lived on through his family, and his grandson Xerxes was well-received by those under his reign. He was popular and he was kind to my people, to the Jews. But popular and kind didn't really seem to count for much for Xerxes himself. He needed much more. He needed the pomp. He needed the grandeur, the splendor. He needed the fame. There was an air of desperation to the man. Or maybe maybe it was insecurity. Maybe he was compensating for something or somewhere that he felt was lacking. I mean, in an age of where an army of 20,000 men could conquer a continent, King Xerxes had an army of up to half a million. And when it came to celebration, like he was doing as my story opens, he wasn't just going to invite a few friends. No, instead he invited all of his nobles and officials, and then all of the military officers of Persia and Medea, and then all of the princes and nobles of the provinces too. And they weren't just invited for dinner. They were invited to party with the king for 180 days. For six months, the king hosted all of these people, Well, more like the people in the city of Susa hosted these people because they tied their animals up on our lawns, they slept in our courtyards, they shopped our markets bare. All of this because for six months they'd been invited to dine with the king. King Xerxes, it seems, knew no limits. 
But as I said, he was still kind. And when the 180-day banquet was over, when the six months of partying was done, the king then extended the invitation to the people of Susa. The greatest, right down to the least, were invited to eat and drink with the king for seven days. For Xerxes, he had seen their sacrifice over the last six months. He had seen his fortress fall to bursting with people who were only there for him, imposing themselves on those who had supported him for many years. So the second banquet that he threw for the people of Susa, it was going to be special. My story describes the setting in the courtyard of the palace garden, decorated beautifully with draped fabric in blue and white. The fabric was then secured in place with white linen cords and royal purple ribbons tied to silver rings that were embedded in marble pillars. And if that weren't enough to just take your breath away, couches made of silver and gold stood on the paved ground of the courtyard. The paving made up of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other expensive and luxurious stones. And my story, it describes the atmosphere. An atmosphere that was never going to be short of merriment after a royal proclamation that the wine was to not stop flowing. The palace officials had been ordered to serve the men just as much as they would like. My story explains that this was all to reflect the king's generosity. And I wonder, though, if it more accurately reflects his desperation, his desire to buy love and affection, to buy more wonder and awe from the people who already followed him. Despite the gold, the silver, the marble, the linens, our king Xerxes still wanted more. And then my story describes another banquet, one that was happening at just the same time as this one, and that was the banquet held by Queen Vashti for the woman of Susa. But after screeds of writing to describe the elaborate affair that was King Xerxes' banquet, maybe the author had run out of ink or just energy, and so all Queen Vashti gets for her banquet is a simple sentence to say it was happening. But like I said before, our King Xerxes, even after all of this, he still wanted more. As though the pomp and the grandeur and the splendor of his palace was not enough to make his people feel truly small in its presence, King Xerxes thought to himself, hmm, surely there is more that I can show them. In fact, I do recall one prized possession of mine that I haven't yet flaunted for the crowd. I mean, the king's desperation was certainly showing with this next move. And I wonder if he'd be better off just admitting his desperation, admitting his desire for love and affection, rather than walking the path that this action led him to walk. But as I mentioned at the start, there was another character working in the background, and they seemed to take care of tying up these loose ends, though that's not today's story. Today's story is about our king putting all he had on show. And after the gold and silver couches and magnificent courtyard, after the open invite for seven days of feasting, and after the endless outpouring of wine, 
On the last night of his great banquet, the king just had to finish with a bang. Feeling the merriment of the celebration and fueled by the merriment of the wine, King Xerxes called to himself the seven eunuchs that attended him. And he asked of them, bring me my wife, Queen Vashti, dress her up, you know, pop the royal crown on her head and bring her here to my party. I want these people to see that she is mine. I want these people to see her beauty, to celebrate her beauty, maybe to be jealous of her beauty. I mean, after all, she is a very beautiful woman, but after all, she is all mine. And when I said that the king wanted to finish this banquet with a big bang, I wonder if what happened next was more bang than he thought he was going to get for his buck. The king's eunuchs did as they were told, and they hurried off to Queen Vashti and relayed the order from Xerxes that her presence was required at the male banquet. Now, when the message that you're delivering has the royal stamp on it, when the message you're delivering is from the king's mouth directly, you'd probably deliver that message quite confidently. You'd probably be quite bold in announcing whatever it is that you have to announce, because who says no to the king? When you're delivering the king's message, there's likely no such thing as a don't shoot the messenger moment, because why would anyone have any reason ever to refuse the king? Unfortunately for these messengers, Queen Vashti did have reason to refuse the king. And even more unfortunately for them, Queen Vashti said no to the king. Queen Vashti didn't live all those years in the palace with him without learning a thing or two. Queen Vashti didn't endure endless shows of wealth and grandeur and flamboyant banquets without guessing there might be a reason behind them all. And Queen Vashti didn't for a moment hear the words endless outpouring of wine and not assume that her husband would imbibe just as much as the next man. Queen Vashti read between the lines of her husband's request, and this is what she heard. I'm drunk, they're all drunk, and I think I'm losing control a little bit. Even I am. Come, Vashti, let me show them what I've got, what I've still got that they can't have. Let me remind them by showing them you that I'm still powerful. Queen Vashti knew her husband was prideful and insecure. She knew that these grand banquets that he kept throwing weren't really for the people of Susa, the people invited. She knew that they were for honoring himself and his wealth. And she knew his requests for her to come and parade and dance before the men would be humiliating and degrading. So she said no. She refused the king, her husband. And the eunuchs were sent back to him with their tails between their legs. This is where the don't shoot the messenger moment falls, as the king's attendants have to report to the king that Queen Vashti has refused him. My story describes the king as furious, and he burned with anger. What happens next does make me laugh, though. 
I would like my story to describe the scene as panic stations went up amongst the king's officials as word went round of what Queen Vashti had done. How could a woman do such a thing? Surely this kind of horror, this kind of betrayal couldn't exist here in Persia. Surely not. What was this mad woman thinking? How could she refuse the king? The whole thing just seems so ridiculous now, so overdramatic and just, just silly. But, I mean, it's a different time now, and I guess I understand how back then this would have been rather unexpected. Deeply angered, King Xerxes called upon his wise advisers, his go-to men, the ones that he always saw in times of crisis such as these, and he demanded answers from them. What must be done with Queen Vashti? What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? Because that's a thing. King Xerxes had followed every rule. He'd done everything right. And need it be said once again, Queen Vashti had absolutely no reason under the sun to ever refuse her husband on this one thing, as far as he was concerned. The wise advisors, they didn't even have time to put their heads together on this one. This was an urgent matter, and the advisor by the name of Memukin spoke up hastily. Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused, the, refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, they, all of the wives of the king's nobles throughout Persia and Medea will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands in the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. See what I mean about a better wording being that panic stations went up. Women everywhere were going to cause a riot, apparently. Women everywhere would be full of contempt and anger, and there would be no end to it. Women everywhere needed to pull their heads in. And it would be best if the king made clear to them just what might happen if they refused to do so. Mamukin continued with his advice. So if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be banished forever from the presence of King Xerxes and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. Let it be noted, as I said, the king's wise advisers didn't put their heads together on this one. As the ones who knew all of the laws and customs of the time, they didn't take the time to consider them, to go through them, to study them. Mamukin himself just quickly came out with this suggestion. Did Mamukin even have a wife? I don't even know, but he was obviously petrified of what exactly could happen if he did. In the next line of my story are the words, the king and his nobles thought this made good sense, so they followed Mamukin's counsel. 
Talk about responding in a panic. Talk about responding out of fear. Talk about how right Vashti was to see through her husband's insecurity and pride. So as quickly as Mamukin came up with the idea, Queen Vashti was in fact deposed. She was banished from King Xerxes, from her husband's presence forevermore, and the royal decree went out to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and say whatever he pleases. And that is how the first chapter of my story ends. It ends with a drunk and panicked king, a wifeless king, and a new decree that reminded the people of the male's place in the home. And as I consider the story so far, my story so far, I see that it wasn't so much about Queen Vashti being bad or disrespectful or disobedient. It was more about King Xerxes' flailing control. It was more about his pride his insecurity, his need to have more and more and more. Is that what the people wanted in a king? I'm not so sure. He's probably not who I would have thought was ideal, but then again, I'm sure there were certain benefits to an influenceable king like Xerxes, as I knew I'd find out. So today we begin this series, making our way through the book of Esther. And the book of Esther is one of only two books in the Bible that are named after a female, the other being Ruth. And it's also only one of two books in the Bible that never mention God, the other being Song of Songs. And here we are in the first chapter with no mention of Esther, our title girl, and no mention of God, who is really the backbone of the whole story. And we can read this chapter with the same feelings as what I described at the beginning. We can read this chapter wondering, where are you, God? Where have you gone? Because every powerful person in this story so far doesn't even know God let alone rely on him or turn to him. Every powerful person in this story acts only in their own strength, making their own decisions, influenced by their own emotions. Every powerful person in this story is steeped in pomp and splendor and grandeur and pride, and it seems that even if God were there, would there be room for him to feature at all? And as things turn to custard for King Xerxes, we want to cry out, do something, God. Yet God is still nowhere to be seen, as far as we know. But even beyond just this first chapter, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Yet the series that we are embarking on today is to highlight all of the places where God is, in fact, working. Today we ask the question, where is God at work when we can't see him? In chapter 1 of Esther, God's work is hidden in the preparation. King Xerxes, he was a bit of a silly guy, full of pride and insecurity, trying to show off to his people with all of his wealth and power. But when things come to crunch time, he falls apart. 
And he relies heavily on maybe his not-so-wise advisors to get him back on track. King Xerxes' story is full of extravagance and excess. Excessive pride leading to extravagant displays of wealth and power, and then excessive insecurity leading to taking extravagant means to right his own wrongs. But God was there in the background, seeing that what this ruler needed was someone calm, someone strong, someone measured, and someone wise to walk alongside King Xerxes carefully with him. And so as things fall down around King Xerxes through his own silly decisions, an opportunity is opened for God to provide, for God to provide the right person, one of his own, to aid Xerxes as he leads. Though we don't see God working, though his actions aren't explicitly mentioned, God is at work in the background, in the preparation. Though we may not see God, there is nothing that he doesn't see. There is nothing that escapes him. And behind the scenes, he is orchestrating a beautiful masterpiece. And this morning, I wonder if we could take some time together now, maybe turn to those around you, and if you would like to, you might want to share about a time where you thought you had lost God, where you were the one crying out, where are you, God? Are you even working at all? How did you feel at that time? And what sort of things helped you to persevere through it? I mean, hindsight is often a very valuable thing for situations like this. If you've ever come out the other side of a dry season, I wonder when you look back, could you see where God was in fact working? Where God was in fact at work throughout that entire time? What was he doing? What was he preparing you for? And if you find yourself at this time, in the middle of a dry season... If you find yourself on this day asking God, where are you? You might like to ask those around you to pray with you, to ask that God would reveal to you where he is working in your life. Because God is always at work, even when we can't see it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are so much bigger than our understanding. You are so much bigger than what we can see. And your impact and your work stretches far beyond what we can even comprehend. Lord God, as we take some time this morning to reflect and to maybe share with those around us, would we recall the moments where your work has been so evident in our lives? Even when we couldn't see it, God, would we recall the moments that we know we can trust upon, where we saw how faithful you were as we saw your work in the background of our lives. We thank you, God, that even when we can't see it, even when we can't comprehend it, you were always working. You were always working. In Jesus' name, amen.